Good morning and welcome to Money for Nothing. I'm Brian Curtis. Russia annexes Crimea with the magic wand of the pen. Ukraine cries robbery and markets say, phew, he only took Crimea, which is kind of perverse. And we'll get to details on that in a minute. On Wall Street and in Europe, stocks moved higher. In the hearts and minds of our people, Crimea has always been an inalienable part of Russia. This is an unshakable conviction transferred from generation to generation. Vladimir Putin in the Russian parliament. Meantime, U.S. Secretary of State John Kerry said that Mr. Putin's words were on the wrong side of history. With all due respect, they really just didn't jibe with reality or with what's happening on the ground. In our featured segments this morning, we'll be talking a little bit about Crimea. We'll also talk about the state of China's property market with Michael Klebaner at Jones Lang LaSalle. And what are the big institutional property investors doing with their cash? CBRE's Ada Choi joins us for that discussion. And is 2014 shaping up to be crunch time for emerging markets? Nomira's Michael Kurtz will be along for that discussion. He will say, yes, this will be a critical year. But first, the annexation of Crimea by Russia and the BBC's Daniel Sanford. In the imperial splendor of the Palace of the Tsars, a defiant President Putin entered to a fanfare. Today, in the Kremlin, the historic seat of power, he was expanding Russia's borders for the first time in 70 years, welcoming back a former jewel in the crown of the Russian Empire. In the hearts and minds of our people, Crimea has always been an inalienable part of Russia. This is an unshakable conviction transferred from generation to generation, unshaken by time and by circumstance. Time and again, the audience of MPs rose to applaud him. He accused the West of acting irresponsibly, aggressively and hypocritically in Ukraine but promised he wasn't interested in annexing any more territory. And it was that last point that encouraged Marcus. That seems a bit unseemly, but it also means that investors had discounted more from Russia that uh, the Russians might even move to take over Ukraine. At the moment, Vladimir Putin says no. But John Kerry, the American Secretary of State, wasn't pleased with what he heard. And I must say, I was really struck and... uh... Uh, somewhat surprised and even disappointed by the uh, interpretations and the facts as as they were uh, articulated by the president. And with all due respect, they really just didn't jibe with reality or with what's happening on the ground. Uh, and uh, the president may have his version of history, but I believe that he and Russia, for what they have done, are on the wrong side of history. But again, since markets had discounted more, we see a lot of green numbers. We had big rallies on Wall Street and also in Europe. Well, modest, at least in Europe. And here in Asia this morning, we do see gains. The Nikkei is up 69 points at 14,481. That's a jump of about half a percent. In Australia, the ASX 200 up nine points at 53.69. And stocks also moving higher in Seoul. So, and also New Zealand. So all the markets that are open, we see uh, markets higher there. The dollar yen is now 101. 
1.44, so that's really very little change there in that exchange. And uh, looking at the euro, it's trading at 1.39 U.S. dollars. On Wall Street, as we mentioned, stocks up. It was the best two-day gain in some five weeks. Housing data bolstered confidence. And again, Vladimir Putin said Russia is not seeking to split up Ukraine. Microsoft rallied. The company will debut a version of Office for Apple's iPad. Uh, The S&P 500 up 0.7%, 1872. The Dow Jones Industrial Average up 88 points at 16,336. But the yield on the 10-year Treasury was actually a couple of ticks lower. CEO for instance, are not all that confident. John Engler is the president of the Business Roundtable. GDP about 2.4%. That's a little bit below where the consensus numbers have been. And they're, they're questioning, you know, how much growth can we squeeze out of an economy where we don't make major decisions? He talks about what he and other CEOs think is needed to get them to deploy more cash. If you had to you know, put everybody to the test, they'd say the number one issue is let's get comprehensive tax reform done. Let's get this 35% corporate rate down uh, near the average of the competitor nation, so 25%. Let's fix that international tax situation. We've got $2 trillion offshore. Let's get that home. Let's, let's really get things started there. Let's get some better trade agreements out there. Let's open up and remove some of the trade barriers. And then, at the same time, let's get that talent here. You know, we're competing globally today for talent, so immigration reform matters. Governor John Engler there, who's the president of the Business Roundtable, talking about a CEO, the 2014 survey of CEOs in America. Uh, a Commerce Department report showed that housing starts were little changed in February after declining less than previously estimated in January. And permits for future projects were up 7.7%. There was some separate data that indicated the cost of living was little changed in February. Inflation remains well below the Fed's goal. Well, we say good morning now for our first guest, Michael Kurtz, head of global equity strategy at Nomura. Michael, good morning. Morning, Brian. Well, so much to ask you about. Uh, the theme that we brought you on for was you saying that 2014 could be shaping up as crunch time for emerging market economies. So let's get to that first. What do you mean? Well, uh, the emerging markets used to be regarded as the engine of global growth. And indeed, for much of the past uh, decade and a half, they, they actually have been in terms of where the marginal demand growth is coming from. Um, but that's manifestly not been the case over the past two or three years. There's been a real deceleration. And a lot of that um, hinges on the increasing need for reform, structural change. You've talked about that a lot on your show in the context of China, just north of us. Um, and unfortunately, in many cases, the political systems of these emerging market countries are simply not up uh, to the task. And we need to see uh, whether or not the electoral process is going to bring into place governments that are more prepared and for that matter, signify elect, uh, electorates that are more prepared to go through some of these changes in order to keep growth on track. As things go, there are 11 major emerging market countries globally this year that are holding national elections. And so we need to be very clear on uh, how each of those big emerging market countries are are, uh, are shifting in terms of their, their will to go through that sort of reform process. Okay, another theme that is often brought up on this program, uh, the reform, it, will it be good for the economies? Probably yes. Will it be good for markets? Well, that's a bigger question mark. 
Yeah, or I would even go so far as to say that, that the reform is not always immediately good for these economies. Sometimes, as people say, you have to go through the short-term pain in order to obtain the longer-term gain. China, although it's, uh, of course, not a, an, an economy where there will be national elections this year, is struggling with some of these questions themselves. And I think we see some of that playing out uh, you know, very much in, in markets recently with, with a lot of the volatility, particularly in state-owned sectors or the banking sector that are clearly going to be at the epicenter of, of a lot of these reforms. We talked a lot about China lately, as you mentioned, so maybe we won't so much today. Let's talk a little bit about India. You like it. We do. Uh, India has, uh, of course, their their own elections coming up. They're held over an almost one-month period between uh, the middle of next month and with the results to be announced on the 16th of May. Here, there seems to be a tremendous uh, shift in the national mood in the direction of more pro-growth, pro-business sorts of policies. In- increasingly, the Indian electorate, I think, uh, even uh, at the lower levels, is coming to the realization that the bloated welfare state uh, is not is, is not getting that economy to the next level, and that uh, it's looking to us as if the opposition party, this, this so-called BJP party, the, the Hindu Nationalist Party, will recapture government for the first time uh, in more than a decade, and that uh, there, there may therefore be a substantial shift in terms of Indian economic policy that will take the economy to a slightly higher growth platform than we've seen over the past couple of years. Yeah, people seem to like the uh, central bank governor there quite a bit. Um, uh, let's also talk about Thailand and Vietnam. Um, not elections, I guess, in, in Vietnam, but uh, what do you think of those two? Well, um Thailand, unfortunately, I I think even on the political front, is unlikely to see the kind of decisive uh, solution to the increasingly deep split in the body politic there that would be necessary to give us a comfort level uh, as as foreign investors in in that particular market. We're certainly alive to the possibility that the mere calling of elections and moving on beyond the current very polarized state uh, on the ground may be market-positive in the short term. And so investors who take a more tactical view, who, who maybe are more nimble in terms of the way they deploy their, uh, their own capital, may be able to uh, you know, sort of play Thailand from the short-term perspective for some gains, simply because uncertainty will be removed, and therefore there'll be some re-rating of stocks. But longer-term Thailand, unfortunately, we think uh, these deep divisions are, are going to continue to infect their politics, and even in the initial stages of a new government, and let's assume that there will be one by uh, by the third quarter. Uh, we expect that policymakers will be so focused on trying to uh, reform the political process, maybe even a constitutional rewrite, that they won't have the time initially to focus on economic reform, economic stimulus, and therefore the outlook for a fairly slow growth environment is likely to persist longer than investors would like it to. Okay, a few words on Vietnam, because it's interesting. They do have a current account surplus there, so and the, and the uh, currency, the dong, has been relatively stable of late, which wasn't the case a few years back, uh, yet people talk about there's a lot of non-performing loans there. Do you have strong views about Vietnam? Uh, The equity market's been doing very well. Yeah, we do. And I think in Vietnam's case, we can at least say that it has turned a corner over the past two or three years. It was it was much more of a basket case situation, much closer to uh, the risk of some kind of a, a larger uh, sovereign failure several years ago. Um, at this point, though, with the global economy seeming to, to be patching together more of a recovery, with Vietnam increasingly a play on global demand through the outsourcing 
process that has begun to set up a lot of manufacturing uh, enterprises there. It's going to benefit from that global recovery in the same way that many other Southeast Asian economies do. The Achilles heel, and I think we need to keep watching here, though, uh, is commodity prices. The CRB index has done well year to date, but if we were to take a two, three-year view on the CRB, if the Fed keeps uh, normalizing policy and the dollar strengthens along with that, it could be more of a 1996 to 99 sort of environment in where in which commodity prices and energy prices remain biased to the downside. And Vietnam, with all of its oil and its coffee exports, just to name a couple of examples, would be very vulnerable to that downside in commodity prices if it does return. Yeah, but coffee's up 70% this year. Exactly. And I mean, the I soft say, commodities today, have been going crazy of late, even if the metals and other things, uh, well, gold has done well, but lots of other commodities have suffered, but coffee is really charging up. Yeah, the, the soft commodities have not shared the pain nearly as much as the hards have. Um, I, I only flag that as a risk, Brian, because the, the, the strength of the dollar really is a very important input to the commodity outlook. And unfortunately there for commodity producers of the world, we do think that dollar strength is going to continue to be a key theme, uh, but potentially on a multi-year basis, okay. as it was in the late 1990s. Okay. And Vietnam needs to keep a weather eye on that. Here at home, three of my favorite companies are releasing earnings today, Tencent, BYD, and Galaxy Entertainment, among a host of others. Uh, how are Hong Kong uh, and China earnings going so far, in your view? Uh, and if we could keep it you know, relatively short, uh, is there some potential for volatility here? I think there is. But in fact, uh, we, we should keep in mind that expectations have ratcheted down pretty aggressively for, for Chinese earnings over the past six months or so. And that, uh, you know, while a lot of investors uh, tend to focus on the top line outlook, the sales line or the revenue line, that there has been actually quite a bit of relief on the cost side for a lot of China companies as well. You don't necessarily get as much flow through for a company like Tencent, which isn't a big user of, you know, let's say metals or energy, for example. But we've seen surprises in China over the past 12 months more on cost savings rather than necessarily at the top line. And there, I think you may get uh, some some positive surprise. Okay. Well, you know, last time you were on, I was kind of teasing you for being in the gassed up, pumped up, live on the razor's edge of death world of business jargon expertise and that you were dazzling us with science. But today you get an A. It was pretty much straight talk and not much jargon. Thank you, teacher. Thank you. Oh, yes. Oh, only in my wildest dreams. Thank you very much, Michael. Michael Kurtz is the head of global equity strategy in Hong Kong at Nomura. So we are joined now by Michael Klebanner, Jones Lang LaSalle's regional director, head of research. I had a minute there to juggle my papers and say good morning to you, Michael. Thank you very much. Uh, a growth rate of uh, China's property prices uh, eased a little bit. I mean, they were still up quite strongly, up 11.1% in 70 cities. But that was uh, a little bit slower growth than what we've seen. However, Shanghai up 18.7% from uh, the same period last year. Kind of scary. So we thought we'd talk a little bit about uh, China property. Good morning. Uh, good morning, Brian. How are you? Yeah, good. Um, some worries of late with the recent um, default and some interesting uh, action on bonds of, of Wonka and all that. But um, how did you read the report yesterday about prices? 
I think it reflects that uh, price action in the last uh, couple of months has definitely come off uh, the heady growth of uh, 2013. Um, I think we need to keep in mind that this is a seasonally slow period. Chinese New Year historically is a, is a slow period. But overall, our outlook for 2013, 14 uh, is for much more modest uh, price action in the tier one cities um, and in tier two cities, most likely to be relatively flat um, and could potentially even require some support from the government on the policy side to to maintain uh, a kind of flat price outlook. So no bad moon rising overall, in your view? Um, I mean, there's there is risk, um, and I think I think we talked about this last week. The outlook for uh, mortgage availability is absolutely crucial uh, for um, price action with respect to housing. Um, First-time home buyers are still ready, able, and willing to purchase, but if the control of credit expansion impacts availability of mortgages, that's going to be a major risk factor for the market. I think you were saying uh, last time you were on that uh, they could very easily just lower the uh, down payment from 30 to 20 or whatever they want to do for first-time home buyers uh, or for even others, and, uh, and that would really spruce up demand. Yeah, I mean, I think that is really why we maintain a fairly confident outlook on the market and remain relatively positive on things is that there is this very important lever at their disposal um, and one that wouldn't be very difficult for them to employ if necessary. Um, And I think, you know, the announcement uh, on Sunday uh, from the premier about um, the new urbanization plan Uh, This is not a short-term issue in terms of kind of fixing the market, uh, but more medium and long-term in terms of addressing the underlying fundamentals, which is a lack of affordable housing for the rising middle class. And I think ultimately lowering down payment requirements is going to be a crucial part of bringing those people into the market. I mean, it it, it seems smart as hell, you know, to to actually go in and and to reform the shantytowns uh, because that is very accessible land. It's land that that uh, is there. It's not performing at the moment. Uh, nobody really wants it. So go in and clear it. You'll displace a lot of people, but you'll also create some uh, affordable housing and some other housing that people can move into. So does that mean that, you know, separate from your property hat, would you be buying cement and steel again? Um, I guess it's really a question of scale, right? The industry itself has grown tremendously in the last decade. I mean, when you see the rate of increase in construction starts, completions, the whole industry's capacity has grown so much. Um, and I think when you go back three years when they first started talking about public housing and economic housing, that also led to substantial increases in the industry's capacity. So I think given the much, much larger base uh, that we're growing off of now, I think those growth rates are necessarily going to be lower. You know, most of the people I have on this program, Michael, are actually uh, bearish on property in China. And I find myself constantly defending because, you know, we have to play the devil's advocate and all that. Uh, but, but the one unanswered question all the time is all the empty properties, all the empty buildings, you know, the ghost towns and all that. How do you get around that? How do you sure. uh, justify it? Right. The housing market is not one market. Um, there is... A, a fundamental lack of supply of middle class housing, right? And that is ultimately the major opportunity in the market. So it isn't that 
high-end housing needs to come down 30 or 50 percent in price in order for middle-class people to participate in the market. It's actually having developers build for that segment. And so the supply and demand balance in the high-end uh, is in a number of cities tending towards oversupply. But that's in that segment, in the sort of high-end of the market. There is huge unmet demand in uh, in terms of middle-class housing. So I think it's very important to keep those different market segments in mind. And we see and have seen for some time government policy very strongly encouraging developers to move the positioning of new projects lower. So you pretty much take off the table um, a fact that uh, a default like we saw the other day, that that could spread and that that alone could actually bring down you know, the house of cards if it's if it is a house of cards. Uh, I, I agree. I mean, I think, again, it's really about a huge unmet demand. So there is fundamental demand in the market. Um, and I think, you know, for 2014, consolidation could very well be one of the most important themes that we see. And I frankly think the government would view that positively. Okay, a few words about Hong Kong. Um, how does the market look for, uh, to you at the moment? Um, still looking uh, looking a bit soft in terms of the residential market, in terms of primary sales. Um, I think uh, the outlook for the economy is uh, improving a bit in terms of global conditions uh, getting stronger, and that's always been good for Hong Kong. So, I mean, I... I personally think uh, the risk in the Hong Kong housing market is that it actually outperforms some of the fairly bearish expectations. Yeah, you said that last time, which I was quite surprised by, uh, that you think the risk is to the upside. Um, look, it, you know, there's so much leverage in this uh, economy to what is happening in global conditions. And, you know, the U.S. economy is still looking uh, fairly strong, I think, really shaken off the terrible winter weather that we've seen. And, you know, some of the economic indicators of the U.S. are looking good. Uh, Europe is, again, looking better. And um, it hasn't yet translated into the trade data out of China, but that's certainly crucial for um, for Hong Kong's economy. And I think uh, some of the capital markets are also starting to get a bit more active with IPOs and whatnot. And all of these factors are ultimately good for Hong Kong, and that's good for employment, which is ultimately good for housing. Okay, Michael, interesting views. Thank you. Michael Kilbanner, regional Director, Head of Research for Greater China at Jones Lang LaSalle. For another take, we're joined by Ada Choi, Director of CBRE Research Asia. Ms. Choi, good morning. Good morning. So professional investors apparently, according to your survey uh, results, not all that phased by the negative news flow on China. Why? Um, I think overall, uh, most of the international investors are still underweighting their uh, portfolios in Asia. And China, you know, is the second largest world economy. So they will have to uh, get some uh, assets in China. So that's why we are still seeing very strong interest in China. Of course, there are quite a number of challenges. Uh, one of them is uh, the overpricing of the commercial properties and also the lack of available assets that are suitable for investment. The, the uh, developers, the ones that are traded here in Hong Kong, appear to be very cheap because people have discounted, you know, much greater troubles. Uh, uh, would you, of the ones listed here, would, which ones do you like? Well, I, I won't have a comment on what, what they like. Uh, overall, some of the Chinese developers are uh, moving up their uh, um, uh, learning curve and be part of uh, the international players, for example, China Resources. 
Um, but um, I think uh, from the results uh, that we've got from the survey, it's not only China being the top destination. We've also seen a strong de- um, interest in Japan and Australia as well. Yes, and I saw a report out overnight that uh, Japan real estate was starting to move. Uh, those fund managers that you pulled uh, and private equity operators, um, do they like Tokyo or do they like some of the outlying areas in Japan? Well, I think for the uh, office sectors, uh, the managers still prefer to stay in uh, in the Tokyo market because it's big. Um, but uh, the cap rates have compressed quite substantially in the Tokyo area. So some of the fund managers have to move to some regional cities like Osaka, Fukuoka uh, to, um, to, to look for uh, more viable assets. Uh, but their search will be on the logistics or on the retail sectors. What are some of the interesting findings in this survey? Well, I think it's quite clear that investors are quite committed to increase their investment in Asia-Pacific. About two-thirds of the respondents think that they will increase their commitment. Uh, I think it's interesting because uh, in 2013, we've already recorded 90 billion U.S. dollars of transactions across this region, which is the highest level we've seen since 2005. So on top of that, we are still seeing a more increase in turnover this year. Yeah, well, it's not going to the Hong Kong and uh, China developers. Uh, You know, these markets have really underperformed. And if you wanted to put your finger on one reason, it's probably because of fears that property uh, could potentially be a problem. Uh, You know, you've got major developers down 30 percent in some cases. Uh, The money would move into stocks before it would move into the physical property. Who are you surveying? Who are these? crazy fund managers that say they're ready to deploy all this cash. Where is it? Where's the meat? Well, I think the fund managers are very high, uh, highly aware of the uh, threats uh, in the Asia markets. Um, if I look at the response they have on the major obstacles uh, they invest in this region, number one is the property pricing. Number two is the difficulty of finding available assets. So the fund manager. The, the fund managers have to look into the longer-term um, value creation story of Asia because at the end of the day, uh, China and the region still enjoy a much higher GDP growth as you compare to the U.S. and Europe. But of course, over the short term, because of the uh, recovery we are seeing in the West, um, I think over the short term, some of the uh, attention will move back to, to their home market. So it sounds like what you're saying is that we may see um, some some movement in the stocks of these um, operators fairly soon. Well, I guess what we are, the, the survey's uh, main focus is on the commercial property and the direct investment, uh, less uh, a bit on, on the uh, securities side. Okay. All right. Well, um, interesting uh, data there, Ada. Thanks very much for joining us here on Money for Nothing. Thank you. That's Ada Choi, Director of CBRE Research for Asia. Coming to the end of the program, bring you up to date in the markets here. The Nikkei is up 99 points. That's a gain of seven-tenths of a percent. It's all green numbers this morning. Risk back on. Nice day yesterday. Looks like another one today. In Australia, the ASX 200 up five points, 53.65. And in Seoul, the Kospi is up about one-third of one percent. That's a six-point gain in 1946. Gold traded down, though, 13.57. So you're you're taking uh, some of the money out of gold and you're buying stock. And oil price is now $106.61 a barrel. Money for nothing on a Wednesday.
Yeah, the greenback boogie, and uh, just the dollar briefly uh, is trading uh, pretty flat against other key currencies. So the weather today, it's looking cloudy and humid and foggy, uh, but uh, we will get some sunshine uh, today, and the maximum temperature should be 26 degrees. It's going to be 24 tomorrow and then drop down to about 19, so we'll see a little bit cooler weather ahead. A new summary now with Samantha Butler. Ukraine says one of its servicemen has been killed in clashes at a military base in Simferopol, hours after Russian and Crimean leaders signed a treaty incorporating the Black Sea Peninsula into the Russian Federation. In Kiev, Prime Minister Arseniyat Senyuk said the conflict over Crimea had moved from a political to a military stage. In a speech at the Kremlin, President Putin strongly defended Russia's annexation of Crimea, insisting it was an inseparable part of Russia. The Deputy Foreign Minister of Ukraine, Danilo Lubkivsky, said it was not up to Mr. Putin to tell Ukraine's leadership what to do. Putin is not God, and he has no any right to dictate something to other nations. We have our independent right to conduct our internal and foreign policy. That's why we will go ahead. The families of Chinese passengers who were aboard the missing Malaysia Airlines flight have expressed anger at what they say is the